You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning again. Thank you for joining us, everyone. We have many of you, hundreds of you on the line, so we really appreciate you tuning in. Today, the discussion is really focused on benefit-related issues. Having said that, I am Michelle Camayo. I am VP of Compliance for Bolton and Company. So I'm the compliance leader here, and I have a guest speaker today, Bob Radicky. He is the senior regulatory uh, official, you know, senior regulatory and public policy analyst, you see, although he wears many titles. Right, Bob? Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, the longest title in, in the books, I guess. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Thank you for being here. The reason that Bob is on the call, for those of you listening, is Bob is a fantastic resource for not only Bolton, but other organizations across the nation. And I have to say that he is the best at explaining policy to simplify it in terms that we can all understand. And he does it from a lens as a business owner. And so everything we hear, it's so easy to digest that when I thought, okay, who's going to be my guest speaker today, I immediately thought of Bob. So, Bob, thank well, you thank, so much for thank being Thank you here. for that. Thank you very much. Of course. Today, our goal is to have a conversation that helps you as the employer along the way during this, this unprecedented time. And I know that HR leaders and business owners want validation on what they've read, or you want a second set of eyes, which I completely understand. Uh, We all want that second set of eyes in today's environment because nothing in history points us to what to do during this time. So that second set of eyes is key. And there may not even be guidance for some of the questions that you have at this point. So my hope is that this weekly conversation really provides you a little bit of that validation and that guidance. Today, we're going to talk about some key topics, and then we'll finish up with some questions. So we have the agenda. We have our key topics, and we have toilet paper talk. Uh, you didn't say we were going to talk about that. <laughs> Sorry, not, Bob. Not, I know I just sprung this on you. <laughs> I'm not prepared to talk about the toilet paper so- supply chain today. I did not uh, do any study on that, so I'm not going to be not going to be able to add anything to that. Really, this is just my way of being funny. This is relevant issues from last week. Hopefully, <laughs> right. Hopefully, that gives gives you all a laugh. You're you're on your own on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll shorten that to TPT for future okay. right. for future right. calls. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> We will talk about a wish list that we have for guidance that both myself and Bob would love to see some guidance on some benefit-related items that we haven't yet seen. And then, of course, we will spend a good amount of time on facts. So FSCRA, I'm not sure what you're calling it. You may call it HR 6201 or FSCRA or Families First. Whatever you're using, we want to go over a few highlights. There are two major provisions that infect, uh, that are affecting employers. And what I've seen is that we have some employers thus far who haven't realized that they are two separate provisions. That, of course, is emergency FMLA and emergency paid sick leave. 
Bob, have you seen employers kind of getting confused because they don't realize these are two separate ones or um, are you finding that everyone is starting to catch on? No, there's there's plenty of confusion and it's an important distinction because, you know, as Michelle gets into it, you're going to see that the FMLA expansion includes many of the same rules and things that we've lived with under FMLA for many years. You have to think of that as just a new part of FMLA where the emergency paid sick leave is a brand spanking new two-week thing that we've never had before. So it's important you distinguish between those two, even though they might be happening to the same person, you know, in conjunction. We'll talk about that. But yeah, I think it is definitely important to keep them uh, thought of as separately because the rules are slightly different for those two. Yeah, so emergency FMLA, like Bob said, the FMLA rules already exist. What they're doing is expanding it for one particular reason, and that is they're expanding it to include those unable to work or telework because their daycare center or the school has been closed for that minor child. And also remember that FMLA, regular FMLA rules state that you have to maintain that group health plan. And as as you were before they were uh, um, out on FMLA, and that obviously goes for the emergency FMLA as well. So something to keep in mind there. Emergency paid sick leave is not as simple. Uh, there are a lot more, I think there are six qualifying reasons for taking emergency paid sick leave, and we'll talk about that in a few slides. Both of the provisions are applicable to private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees and all uh, governmental entities. There's this very narrow exemption for employers with fewer than 50, and Bob will definitely talk about that. I have heard it many times the past week that uh, I have an employer with fewer than 50 employees, and they say, oh, no, Michelle, I'm exempt. That is not 100% accurate, so we need to clarify that today, and we will. Both provisions are mandating paid time, and both provisions allow for the exclusion of healthcare providers and emergency responders. And of course, employer tax credits are available, which are meant to essentially offset the cost of this paid leave time to the employer. I had an employer ask me just yesterday whether or not the emergency paid sick leave time and emergency FMLA was out of their pocket. You know, they said, oh, shouldn't they go to the state website and apply for paid family leave? And that's a California ordinance, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer is this comes out of your pocket. And as the employer, when we're talking about these two provisions. It does, but I'm going to say that I think it's important to understand it comes out of the employer's pocket, but we'll talk in more detail. The way the tax credits are designed that you're going to talk about is to reimburse the employer for any of those extra expenses. So, um, you know, I I want to make sure people understand that while this is a hassle and administratively a lot of work and stuff like that, when we settle up with the federal government through our payroll taxes, um, the, the federal government is the one that's going to end up footing the bill for this extra pay. Yes, thank you for saying that. And when we and when we talk about the cost, Bob, we aren't we also talking about the cost of continuing health care premiums? Would yeah, that be yeah, exactly. a reimbursable? Yep. So the extra well? pay, good point. Yeah, good point. The extra pay and you'll see and any benefits that you're gonna have to provide because someone's taking one of these leaves that you wouldn't have normally had to. So again, just a real high level, what you're gonna get reimbursed for is any 
additional costs due to these new requirements, not any other pay and benefits you might be providing. And we'll help define that a little bit when we get into the tax credits. So the qualifying reasons for taking the leave under emergency FMLA, this may be old news to many on the call, but we want to keep emphasizing this. We often need to hear things more than once. Emergency FMLA, to me, this is the simplest one. There's really only one reason um, to take it under emergency FMLA, and that is if the employee is unable to work due to a need to leave um, to care for their son or their daughter under 18 where the school has closed or the child care provider has closed. I think that's it in a nutshell. Am I, am I missing anything kind of high level, Bob, for, for this well, emergency you, FMLA? You said, well, the only, not missing anything because it just came out last night. <laughs> for those of you on the call, this is the life Michelle and I are living these days. Um, since this law was passed, the Department of Labor and the IRS have been posting updates on their website in the form of frequently asked questions and memos, and then the Department of Labor issued some guidance. And 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 yesterday, the IRS issued a whole new set of, of, of stuff related to the tax credit. And buried in that stuff was a clarification on the kids under age 18 rule. Um, we got a lot of questions and some commentary when we first read this that you really mean somebody gets to stay home with a 16 or 17-year-old and, and, and qualify for paid leave? And that, that, that was a good question, and the IRS was listening because in guidance that just came out yesterday, they are saying that the employee will need to provide um, documentation of extenuating circumstances for children over 14 for the need for leave during daytime hours. So in other words, that the IRS is recognizing that 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds should be able to stay home and take care of themselves during the day, and you may not qualify for the leave. And so now the IRS is saying the employer can require the employee to give a valid reason why they need the leave for someone over 15 uh, that's staying home during daytime hours. That was an interesting adjustment. It just happened yesterday. Thank you so much, Bob. That is that is a great that's a great time for me to stop and say that a lot of what was released yesterday, and there was a lot. So a lot of that is it has yet to be digested. So what you see today could be updated based on the guidance once we digest that. For example, the the DOL released temporary regulations. Just yesterday, it was 124 pages, and I think we saw it sometime in the afternoon. So that when that's digested, we will have more info. So please always, always keep track of those facts. And Bob, thank you so much for being on top on top of that so quickly. What? And, and and I think this bears spending one more moment on just so everybody understands sure. the situation we're dealing with. Can I just put this in perspective? I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years. And, you know, typically in a regulatory environment like this, we have proposed regulations, we have comment periods, we have final regulations. Never in my 30-year career have we had laws passed, implemented, and guidance issued over a two-week period. That That is just stunning in its in just its very thought, and you employee benefit managers and human resource managers are suffering the consequences. So, you know, I have, Michelle, looked through and read through those regs and looked through the new IRS stuff, but, you know, it is impossible to catch every single thing and every single change. You know, I mean, there could be something coming out as we speak now. So we're doing our best. 
Um, I will tell you when I see something that I, I was reading last night, and we'll we'll adjust as we go. But you're right, Michelle. These everybody has to stay on top of this and keep checking back with, you know, the folks at Bolton, the representative you talked to there, and and the IRS and DOL information. So we're we're doing our best. We're we're on top of it. But yeah, this is changing. I've, I've never experienced anything like this in in my 30 years in the compliance business. So bear with right. us, folks. Thanks for thanks for understanding that. Yes. Okay, so we're going to look at some of the qualifying reasons for taking leave under the second provision, which is emergency paid sick leave. So the second provision, this one, as I said, is more complex. There are more reasons. And the employee eligibility is also different. So that is worth taking note if you haven't seen that all. Um, these employees are eligible regardless of how long they've been employed. And an employer may not require the employee to use other paid leave. So just two things you want to keep in mind. The qualifying reasons for this reason that, or I don't, maybe not redundant, but it's one of the reasons it's the same reason for emergency FMLA, which was tripping up our employers when that first came out. A lot of employers said, wait a minute, I don't get it. Do they take emergency FMLA or do they take emergency paid sick leave? And Bob, the answer is, and our and our employers were saying, wait a minute, do they which one do they qualify for? And the answer is both, right? Yep, yep, exactly. And and that was actually intentional. They maybe could have done it a little more elegantly, but the reason <laughs> that they did that was so that someone that does have to stay home with their children, right, qualifies for the full twelve weeks of FMLA, but the first ten days are unpaid. You're gonna go through that. They also qualify for two weeks of paid sick leave for staying home and taking care of children. So eventually, if the reason someone needs to time paid time off is they're going to be using both for the first two weeks, it'll be paid under the sick leave portion, and it'll be counting as the first two weeks of their FMLA under their unpaid portion. So for the first two weeks, you're right, that reason triggers both. All the other reasons up there only trigger, as you said, the, five, the, the other five, four reasons only trigger the two weeks of sick leave. Right. But for now, we're going to move on to the next slide. As our employers or employers started to administer the sick leave or sort of start to understand it and then get requests from employees, I started to get a lot of questions in the past few days regarding what kind of documentation can I even ask for documentation? I would say in the first couple of days of this, absent the DOL guidance, it was almost like, wow, can you even ask for documentation? Mm -hmm. um, that has changed. Very unclear. Very unclear. And, and now I, I believe we're starting to get a lot more clarity yep. and we, we just got it. So it's, we got clarity, but we're still not, Maybe we're not 100% there, but we got pretty far with the IRS guidance that was um, that was released recently. Uh, the DOL essentially lobbed this over to the IRS, and it's, and it's because the IRS is in charge of all those you know um, tax credits. I'm going to switch gears to the CARES Act. This was a 2.2 trillion dollar bill. I'm sure that was a, a huge headline. How much how much money was was budgeted here? Uh, it's referred to as Phase Three. And I, when, when this came out, I was like, phase three, what was phase one? I'm sorry, I missed phase one. So yeah. I wanted yeah. to make sure that I at least gave you all the perspective that phase one was essentially um, $8.3 billion supporting vaccine research. That was in early March. 
second phase, of course, was FFCRA, and now we are at the third phase, which is the CARES Act. And I heard talk of phase four, but I don't have any details for you on that today. I have been, one of the reasons I've been so excited about this call, and I know this is, this is really nerdy, but <laughs> it's the fact that OTC is back. I get to say that over-the-counter drugs um, and items are back. Those of us who had an HSA or FSA or HRA prior to the ACA remembers what this is like, and it was fantastic. And it is back, and it's back forever, permanently, as of, as of now. So this Permanently is, as of now. That's a, that's a compliance. I know. <laughs> it is. Um, I have to put that disclaimer in because you, you just never know what's going to be repealed down the road. So, um, so OTC is back. Over the counter is back. For those that, that may not be so familiar with this, it, it is the um, reimbursement of, of certain over the counter uh, drugs like Advil or allergy medication. I was at CVS yesterday and I grabbed some allergy medication and I was, I was also excited because I'm like, oh, this is gonna be the first time I'm gonna try to use my debit card. And it did not work, I will tell you that. The, and I, when I went to CVS counter, I said, hey, are you guys, uh, have, have you updated your codes so that you can take the, the FSA and the HSA cards now? The, re the cashier looked at me like I was crazy. He, he, he had no clue what I was talking no about. Idea. And I just said, you know, yeah, I just said, you know what, let me run my card and just tell me if it's declined. And it was declined. So what that tells us is the merchants, the retailers have not yet updated their systems. This is all the way back to January 1 of 2020. So if you did keep your receipts, you can reimburse yourself through the FSA and also for the HSA. To the HRA too. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't mean to neglect the HRAs. That there are just more HSAs and FSAs out there. Also, HSA and telehealth expansion came out of the CARES Act. That's for plan years beginning on. Uh, it does have a, It does have an end date, and the end date it expires um, for plan years beginning on or before 12/31/2021. I, I love how they. I love the language that they use. <laughs> The takeaway here is that it it's an ex, there is an expiration date on that. COVID nineteen testing no cost sharing. So the federal government government came out and said no cost sharing for testing for all plans. Self funded, fully insured, grandfathered. You cannot um, ask for cost sharing when it comes to the testing. That is going to expire at the end of the public health emergency. So that has an ex, an end date as well. One thing I want to say is here in California, at least three of our major carriers have come out and said they're also going to cover treatment of COVID-19 to uh, May 31st seems to be the most common deadline. And, and I, I, I have to say, I am shocked by that, that they're covering treatment. Bobby's been doing this longer than me. Does, is, is it shocking at all to you that the carriers are willingly raising their hand and saying we're gonna we're gonna cover it, it, it with no cost sharing? Yeah, I think I mean the when you think about it, the carriers know they're already on the hook for all of the expenses, right? Um, above coinsurance and deductibles. So they've already 
they're doing their modeling on how much this is going to cost them in total claims. And I suspect, I'm not an underwriter or an actuary, but I suspect what they're realizing is to add on top of that, covering that first $6,000 or $7,000, whatever, you know, whatever the out-of-pocket might be, is not going to fundamentally change their overall costs. I mean, it's going to add a lot. I'm not being Pollyannish here, but but that it's that it's manageable and considering what we're dealing with. But to your answer your question directly, no, I've never seen anything like this in my life in 30 years where carriers <laughs> come out and voluntarily step forward and say we're going to cover extra claims that we don't have to. This is you use the word already that we're all using a million times unprecedented what we're dealing with. So that that is right. yeah that is a first since the you know as well, at least as long as I've been in the yeah. insurance business. And I know that some people are on the line thinking to themselves, this isn't free. This is going to be passed on. You know, renewal increases might, uh, will be affected. You know, I, can, I think we can just say will. And, and I, and I agree with that. I wasn't speaking to the fact that, that someone is going to pay for this and it most likely will be employer group health plans paying for their share of this. But, um, it's it still, still, it was very surprising to me. So assistance for businesses, that's part of the CARES Act, the Payroll Protection Program under SBA. That is a very relevant topic in the past couple of days. It's been extremely relevant to business owners and, and controllers and CFOs and, and you know, HR leaders. Um, this Obviously, that's not benefits related, although it, payroll costs could include health insurance. But um, I wanted to have it out here so you saw that, but we're not going to spend much time, if any, on that today. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Michelle. I mean, I'm, I've been in the benefit compliance world my entire life, but I'm waiting for the callback from my banker and my account to help us figure that out for our own company because that is just a, a total, whole different world. Um, I, I, I wouldn't attempt to try to figure out the, the loan provisions of, of, of what, how that's going to operate. Right. We're going to leave that to the bankers and the CPAs and the accountants of the world. Right. Yes. Right. Unemployment benefits. Again, we're not going to talk much about this today. Did You've probably seen the buzz on that. The states can or may adopt additional federal unemployment benefits. Um, the state has to adopt it. So if, if you've not heard anything from the state saying that they've adopted it or they're extending their benefits because they now can, uh, that's that's because they haven't yet. So this is something that is an option for states. Student loan relief. Uh, that is uh, it's an interesting one. Um, not I haven't seen a lot of employers who who have a lot of extra money um, who are able to right. contribute to to their employee student loan. But if the employer wanted to, they can do so. Um, pre-tax up to fifty-two fifty for this year. Yeah, just this year, though. Be careful. That 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 is yeah. a one-shot deal. If you want to do some pre-tax, I'm sorry, some tax-free money to your employees to cover their student loans, it has to be done before the end of the year. So that's a decision we'd have mm -hmm. to make if we're able to do that uh, pretty quickly here. Right. Right. And and. and Good points, and then the other one is that this is this is the employer would would put up fifty two fifty to would give it to their employee essentially, and so this would be a, an additional benefit to your employee. Mm -hmm. I just not have seen many employers in the in the position to be able to do that. Right. It is available. Yep. Yeah. But having it be be tax free is going to be tempting to some employers now. 
you know, to be able to do that on a tax-free basis instead of maybe giving some other kind of bonus or assistance to some people. Yeah. Great point. And finally, the CARES Act, some of the highlights today that we're talking about, <clears throat> gave the DOL the authority to delay the Form 5500 filings. Now, most of us as an organization, we have to file the Form 5500, so this might be relevant uh, to you. Bolton and Company files um, 5500s on behalf of all of our employers. So we're following this closely to see if they're going to give us some type of extended um, time frame to get those completed. I don't anticipate that Bolton will need any additional time on our clients' behalf, but if we get it, then it, it, it will be a nice to have. Haven't seen if they've done it, but I would not be surprised to see that one come out pretty quickly. Most of you file your 5500s if you got a calendar or plan by the end of July, so <clears throat> we got some time mm -hmm. for them to push that back, and we'll see. We'll hopefully, right. I hope they do it just to ease the burden. You all are working harder than you've ever worked in your life in the HR department, so it would be nice just to be able to put one thing on the back burner if you can. Yes. Yeah, hopefully we will see that soon. I can't imagine it would take that, that long to release a couple, you know, statements on okay. that. Yeah. Okay, so takeaways from here that, that I, I want to make sure that I emphasize this, that paying close attention to the guidance released by the DOL and the IRS and other government agencies, there's so much information out there, even as Bob and I, as experts in our field who, who have to keep track of this, it's, it's a lot for us, much less a lot for employers who, this is not your full-time job, you know, paying attention to this. And it's also the part that breaks my heart is that as an educator, I want to be able to tell you in simple terms, I want to be able to say, okay, do this, do this, and do this, and you'll be fine. And this is how you do it. But there is so much to keep track of that I cannot, I cannot make it simple. I, I just, I can't. And that breaks my heart. It really does. So please pay close attention to the, the release guidance that comes out from all government agencies. Michelle, I'm going to add one thing. The Department of Labor has stated, and, and this, is, this is important, that, that they are going to pursue what they call a non-enforcement position, at least through the middle of this month, at least through the 17th. They know that this is um, the fastest anything has ever been uh, foisted upon employers. So they, they've stated their goal is to help employers understand that if they have, you know, Help, help employers figure out how to do it, and they're not going to be out enforcing aggressively the, the, this, um, at least for the next few weeks. That doesn't mean to ignore it, of course, but it just means we don't have to worry about the Department of Labor you know, looking at uh, every T we cross and every I we dot for a little bit while we figure this out. And, so, and when they do these non-enforcement provisions, they, they, they mean that. And then when they start looking at it later in the year, if you're not complying properly, then, then there, there is risks. But they're giving us some time to get our act together here. Not very much time, but at least they're, they're doing that. I was on a call with an employer, and we were talking about some 401k provisions, which is not Bolton's specialty. Um, but we were talking about it, and he said he had just finished talking to this 401k guy. And, and he said, well, the 401k guy, he, he said, he said he was using a lot of vague terminology and he was saying, well, you could do this and I think it would be fine. And I, and, and I, and I thought, and I, and he kind of asked my opinion of like, is, do you, 
you know, what's going on? Why would he be so vague? And, and the whole, and I said, I feel for him. I feel for him. This is all so new. You understand. All, it's your life. Yeah. Yeah. It, and sometimes you just have to make the best decision that you can as an employer. Exactly. And what kind of risk are exactly. you willing to accept? How do you interpret it? What are you comfortable doing? And so it, not all of the answers are, are going to be at our fingertips right now. And as, as subject matter experts, this is, this is painful, but that is our reality. And being mindful of the time. Um, so I want to leave time for us to, to catch your questions. So I, I think we can, we can make this. We've got about 10 minutes of presentation left. So this is the relevant issues from the last week. Uh, I've shortened toilet paper talk to TPT, and this just, this just makes me giggle. It just makes me giggle. Please indulge me. Just maybe a little bit of a laugh. Um, issue, relevant issues from last week. Things that we are seeing. So adding and dropping coverage. I've, getting, I've been getting a lot of questions whether or not it's okay for an employer, employee to add and drop coverage without a stated qualifying event under the current Section 125 rules, especially because the carriers are coming out saying that they're opening, they're having a special enrollment period, which is, which is amazing. It's amazing. But the carriers don't have to abide by any Section 125 rules. But if you're an employer and you're taking pre-tax deductions, you automatically have a Section 125 and thus are have to follow the rules. That's my that's my compliance uh, spiel. But Bob, I I know you have a take on this and I love hearing it. Would you mind sharing? Yeah. So and and we actually have a couple questions exactly on this that came in and one that we can skip over when we go to the questions because this is uh, let, let me put this in perspective I think and maybe being somebody as old as I am and doing this as long as I am I have a little different perspective than some of you you know the section 125 rule is written to so that employees and employers don't manipulate the tax advantages that's what's there for when you make an election you're supposed to leave the election alone unless you have one of the specified events that allows you to change right so an easy one is if you um, if someone goes from full-time to part-time, that's an employment status change. We all know that allows them to change their their election, right? But these are not normal times. And right now we're getting tons of questions on things like, well, what if I reduce someone's pay um, can, and they want to change from the expensive plan to the cheap plan? Well, uh, as Michelle mentioned, that, that some of these things are not necessarily uh, articulated in the rules as an allowable change. And that's a good example. Under Section 125 rules, that wouldn't be a normal change that would allow someone to change benefit, to change their election. I, I take issue with that because I would suggest that the, I would be shocked if the IRS were to ingress, aggressively enforce the Section 125 rules, if an employer chooses to make an exception and allows employees who they're cutting their pay to make reasonable changes to their election. Come on. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I can't, I, we have to tell you what the rule is because that's the rule. And if somebody's on the call from the IRS right now and wants to tell me that they're coming after me, I, I, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> because I just think that there is some common sense that goes on here too. And we're trying to take care of our employees during something that is unique and that we've never dealt with before. So I personally wouldn't, if it were my company, wouldn't worry too much about making reasonable changes that are to benefit my employees in a difficult time, even if they don't align perfectly 
with the Section 125 election change rules. So that's just my take on it. Um, this is probably being recorded, and you know, we can go back 10 years from now and look back on it and see if I, I got myself in trouble. But I, I just believe that. We, we have <laughs> Thank you for that, Bob. And so, here, so here's why I'm going to say that if, you, if I were your particular uh, – if you sent me an email or called me and said, Michelle, I, okay, I heard Bob on the line, but can I do it? Can I really do it? I'm going to cite the Section 125 rules because I cannot, I can't absorb the risk for your company. Can't tell you I can't to make do it. that. To, right, right. So I, I can't, I can't make a decision on behalf of your company. Um, I can only tell you what I would do, and just as Bob just told you what he would do. And and in fact, Bob, you you run a business, so this is what mm -hmm. you have decided to do. But if the IRS is listening, this is all just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think We're just kidding. I don't think We're kidding. Bob, is following, Bob is following all of the Section 125 rules. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's going to save me. So, you know, let me just, I mean, let me, Michelle, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to take personal responsibility for this. I'm not, I'm not, this is not okay. Bolton's legal position. This isn't even a legal position. Right. But we are, in the middle of something that none of us on this call ever dreamed we'd be experiencing. So my, my plea is to focus on what is the right thing to do for our employees. We're not, if, if, we're, if we're manipulating our plans to take some kind of uh, nefarious tax advantage, then, you know, yeah, then you're going to get, you're going to get caught. But if we're doing things reasonable to help our employees out in this situation and it doesn't just line up exactly with one of the election change rules. I think we're talking about two different things. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. You got more to cover. Go. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, Bob, we always appreciate your take. Trust me. I just, I don't want you to get any more trouble. So let's just, let's move on. All right. That's why you're moving on. Good, good, good. <laughs> That's right. I want to protect you. Uh, all right. Employers can see, I had this question yesterday. What about employers continuing eligibility during a furlough? So the employer has said, they've come out and said, we will allow you to continue to be eligible while you are furloughed, a generous position. But let's say some employees choose to drop coverage anyway. I mean, I think this one's easier, though, because remember, if you're putting somebody on furlough, you do have the Section 125 rules that an employment status change triggers the opportunity to make an election change, right? If you're changing someone's employment status from full-time to part-time or you know, full-time to furlough or something like that, that generally allows you to let them, even if, you're, even if you're telling other people they can stay on, now we've opened the door to you can let people make an election change. So I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about that one at all. So let me ask you this, Bob, because I'm interested in this one. I, I I was worried, or I am a little worried, that if the employer comes out and says that's an eligible class, that the furlough is an eligible class, there's been no loss of eligibility. But are you saying that you, under the qualifying event of change in status that you believe they still could allow the them to drop so, okay, coverage so, under the existing rules? Okay, so fair, fair. Yeah. You You changed mm -hmm. the rules on me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you've rewritten your plan to make that an eligible class of employees, then we're back to my original plea. That's, let's be reasonable about what we do, but it's not black and white, right? But that's not necessarily what everybody's doing. Sometimes what employees employers are doing is they're getting their carrier to extend coverage to an ineligible class. 
I, I might be splitting hairs yeah. here, but there's a difference, isn't there? You know, um, the carrier, you might not be saying that we're going to make furloughed employees for 60 days an eligible class forever, but we're making an exception right now that we're going to allow those people to stay on the plan. So I, I, again, I think we want to, I think we want to be careful here. Um, mm -hmm. that I'm going to stand with my ground of if it doesn't in, in, perfectly match Section 125 rules and we're doing something for the benefit of our staff, that I'm going to be pretty flexible. Um, but you got to take this on a case-by-case -case basis, right? We don't want the IRS to look at us and say, well, we're trying to manipulate the plan in a way to get around the rules either. Mm -hmm. I, I love it, Bob. The, the, this is this is a, a, this is why you're the perfect guest speaker. So thank you, because when you frame it as this is no, this is an ineligible class that carriers are allowing to stay on the plan. If we frame it like that, then we can say, okay, change in status, uh, losses, you know, qualifying event under right. the current rules, we can do it without risk. But the framing is, so. as an ineligible class is going is the winner there. That that would yes. I, I love it. So thank you for weighing in on that. So as, sure. as an employer, if you're listening and you said, I don't know, did you all really just answer my question? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, as compliance people, gray area is difficult for us sometimes. So I like to deliver, you know, very clear answers. In this instance, again, as Bob said, case by case basis. This is what you're comfortable doing as the employer. Our, our, our perspective is is we like to state the law first and then tell you what our thoughts might be afterwards. And, that makes sense. And, and weigh the business decision versus the risk. Let me, I, let's close this one out with remember what the risk is. The risk here is simply the IRS comes in and says, whoa, you're mismanaging your cafeteria plan, so we're going to disqualify it, and you have to treat benefits provided to those employees as taxable income. Now that's you know that's a huge problem if that ever happens, but but that's what we're talking about: the IRS making you treat some benefits as taxable income because you didn't follow the rules, versus what we're dealing with in the pandemic right now. So those are the two things you're weighing. What's the risk of that? I think it's low compared to the kind of exceptions you're making, but I can't say it's zero. I I, I said I think it's low. All right, I think we beat Perfect. this horse. Enough. We did. I feel like we did. <laughs> All right. The next item would be I definitely, Bob, I want you to talk mm -hmm. about this. I, I had yeah. such a strong reaction from an employer who just was adamant that they were not a covered employer because they were less than 50 employees. Could you talk about this right. narrow exemption that yep. exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did, um, surprise, surprise, we did get a little more guidance on this yesterday from the IRS. But the, the terminology for employers under 50 that they have to pay attention to is you don't have to, to grant the paid sick leave or the, or the expanded FMLA leave only if you can meet this criteria. You have to show me that granting that leave to that person or those people that are requesting it would jeopardize the viability of your business as a going concern. That's the quote. And what that essentially means is you have to prove to me that granting that leave would essentially put you out of business. That's a pretty high bar <laughs> to meet, okay? So if you've got a group under 50 and you've got a couple people to take the leave and it's just really hard and it's a pain and you don't want to do it, you, you got nothing. You, you have to grant the leave. You have to be able to show. And so the IRS actually gave us a couple examples yesterday. So they gave an example of if a, uh, you're a small company and you have 
a handful of employees that are have a certain skill set that are mission critical. Make up your own fact, however you want here. You've got you know a handful of employees that the business can't operate without their skill set, and those employees say they want to take the leave. And literally, you cannot do your business. You cannot run your business without those employees. In that case, you might have an argument. Okay, but anything short of something that drastic. Just because you're under 50 doesn't mean you're you're um, exempt from the law. So, Bob, I want to clarify. Up to the 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 guidance released yesterday, they those employees with less than 50 employees. Sorry, those those companies with less than 50 mm-hmm. employees, they could only be granted an exemption in the in, when it came to the childcare closures and the school closures. Has, is that still for one of those reasons? Has that, do you know, let me say, do you know yet if that's been updated? I don't. First one you got me with. I, I, I know that that is, you, you, you are correct about that this clearly applies, but I think it applies to both. You have to make the same argument to be exempt from the FMLA, expanded FMLA, you would also have to make the same argument. For whoever asked that question, check with your Bolton representative, we'll find out and we'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, and just know that know that, that if you're less than 50 employees, as much as I would love to say something different, it's just that, as Bob said, it, you, you have to make a very strong argument, argument and, and you really have to, to validate that why you're not why you are exempt. Right. It's not automatic. It is not automatic. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. So I think we can move on. I think we've clarified that one in a little less time than the other one. So that's good news. Um, this is another very important one. I, and I said, I would talk about this again. Actually, probably I said, Bob would talk about it. And <laughs> this is the confusion yeah. around the local stay at home orders versus quarantine um, so, for example, if my state issues a stay-at-home order, does this mean all my employees are broadly eligible for this sick leave? So, Bob, could you take okay. this one as well? Yeah, and again, um, breaking news, this was addressed much more clearly in the regulations the Department of Labor released yesterday. So let me phrase the problem. Let me frame the problem here. One of the reasons that someone qualifies for two weeks of sick leave was if they are subject to a quarantine or isolation order. So that was one of the reasons that triggers those two weeks of leave. And so the million dollar question that employers have been asking is, what about these statewide or countywide or regional orders by a governor or or something, you know, the stay at home uh, kind of orders? Does that automatically trigger two weeks of paid leave for all the employees living in that area? And And the answer is absolutely not. So a broad, you know, a broad regional or statewide order does not instantly trigger two weeks of paid leave time under this rule. What the Department of Labor clarified yesterday was an order like that has to make it such that the employee cannot do their work. So I'm going to give you a couple examples. I don't know how to do this other than examples. Um, I'm talking to you from Minnesota. I live in flyover land. Um, And in Minnesota, we have a statewide stay-at-home order here, but it's not the same as some other places. It doesn't restrict us from going to work. So I can still get in my car and drive to work, um, and there's no 
prohibition against that. So this order does not, if I have to go someplace to work, this order doesn't impact my ability to go to work directly. So it doesn't give me any leave um, rights. Now, hearing what's going on in New York City, um, I have understand that in some neighborhoods, people are literally being told to stay in their homes and they actually could be either fined or arrested if they try to travel. Again, I'm just, I, I don't know the details of that. I just know that I've heard it's a much more different. The orders we're talking about are different from place to place. If an order like that is in place, could you see that it could restrict some employee's ability to go to work? Of course you could. And so that would trigger the, the leave right for that employee. So I think the takeaway I want you to do is, is those big stay-at-home broad or statewide orders don't automatically generate uh, the, the right to two weeks of paid leave. It only does if that order is the reason the employee can't do the work. And the last comment about it is those of us that are teleworking from home, a statewide stay-at-home order doesn't prohibit me from doing anything at work because I'm already at home doing the work. <laughs> so a statewide stay-at-home order doesn't grant leave to someone who's able to work from home. So it, it's nuanced, but in most cases, the statewide kind of a regional orders are not going to trigger for most people a right to the leave. Well said. Well said. So let's move on to medical providers exclusion. Uh, we've mm. got a, a very thorough example waiting in the facts that we're going to go over. So we will, for right now, we'll pause that. Okay. And, and we have a lot of information in the, the next few slides, or a few, probably about five or six slides from here. And then we have the CARES Act questions regarding SBA loans. Now remember, this is our toilet paper talk. So we're talking about relative. I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that again. Sorry, I just said that too mm -hmm. funny. Yeah, I know um, you did. I know. <laughs> uh, relevant issues from last week. So so I'm, what I'm saying here is that employers have been asking lots of detailed questions about the SBA loans. And I know that there's a lot of webinar, uh, webinars out there and there's a lot of guides out there. And in fact, I, uh, I was on a webinar yesterday for this. But I, I want to be clear that that we're not uh, we need to leave this to the bankers and the lenders and the CPAs and your your accountants. Not you know Bob and I are not going to be able to speak to that today. But we do understand. I wouldn't ask you. I wouldn't ask up. you to do my taxes, Michelle. I'm not going to ask you to help me get a loan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But I can't. But Bolton, as a as a firm and our employer partners that are out there listening, please know we have a lot of information we can share. I just cannot answer those those detailed questions. I we're, we're always going to pretty much tell you to go find the expert on that matter, or, or we're going to refer you to someone. Let's move on to the guidance wish list, Bob. I'm going to really fly through this one because we sure. need to get to those questions. So this one is common ownership, part of a controlled group under IRS uh, code 414 or 414. Each has under 500 employees, but combined they have over 500, uh, has under 500. Combined they're over 500 as a control group. They have no common management or operations. They have nothing in common. Are they subject to FSCRA because they're over 500 combined? Are they subject? The answer here, you can likely yes. 
you just got to, I'm, I'm just going to plead any of the company, most of the companies on the call today, of course, know they're well over 500 or well under 500. So it's not an issue. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. If you're one of those companies that could be on one side or the other of the fence, you need to turn to the rules that you're familiar with from FMLA. It's called the integrated employer rules. And then from the Fair Labor Standards Act, there's the rules called joint employers when one employee works for two different employees. Those are the two rules that determine who you count as one of your employees. And so we can't go into detail here, but if you're one of those companies that has a couple subsidiaries or whatever, and you're not sure how it f falls out, if you're familiar with the FMLA integrated employer rules and the Fair Labor Standards Act joint employer rules, that's how you determine it. If you're not, you just got to get somebody that's familiar with those rules to help you count who has to be counted towards this. Great guidance. All right, the next question at the bottom of the screen, we have already gone over. We, this is yeah, what we, we talked about one. as a company. Yes, so let's skip that, or let's move on, because we've already answered that one in detail. This is a quick one. An employee went out on leave starting March 15th for a qualifying reason under the FSCRA leave. Do we have to pay the employee? The leave is not retroactive. It applies to leaves taken between April 1 and December 31st. Uh, that, that's pretty clear. Bob, do you have anything else to note on that one? Yeah, we, we got a lot of questions coming in on exactly this one, and I'll add one more thing to it. Not only is the leave not effective, but you also won't get a tax credit for that. So if you provided some leave before April 1st, good for you, you know, that's fine, but you're not going to be able to use those expenses towards your tax credit. The tax credit's only going to reimburse costs for leave that you provide under the law beginning yesterday. All right. So that, that's a fairly simple answer to probably the amount of questions we've gotten on that. It's just, no, it does not apply. The leave's not retroactive. Uh, and the tax credit point that you made is, is a very good point as well. Can my employer deny me paid sick leave if my employer gave me paid leave for a reason identified in the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act prior to the act going to effect? No, you cannot deny. The emergency paid sick leave is a new leave requirement on employers effective April 1. Yeah, nothing to add to that. That's just no. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so we like the simple one. All right. We, well, we, talked we, about we took care this. of the first one on the next page. That's right. We did. I uh, talked about, talk, talk about that a lot. Um, my employee had a reduction of pay, but no, not we did this hours. one too. <laughs> we did do this one. I just want to remind everyone, this looks like a different question, but it's actually the one where we talked about in depth about Section 125 rules. Can they make plan election changes? Uh, we talked about that. There are no permissible status changes that, that speak to a reduction in pay, but uh, Bob provided a lot of context for that one. Is all leave under FMLA now paid leave? No, paid leave is only emergency FMLA when it's taken because the employee must care for a child whose school or place of care has closed. And only That's through the end simple. of this year. Remember, this new FMLA leave is only through the end of 2020 unless they extend it. So this special paid, if nothing else happens, we'll be back to FMLA being just unpaid starting next year. This one has a lot of details. What provider and first responder employees can be excluded, yeah. excluded from eligibility? This, I want you all to, you have these slides. We don't need to go over these in detail. But, but the bottom line, Bob, you and I talked about this, is, is a lot of people were asking um, whether or not their staff that, that weren't actual doctors and such could 
are eligible for the leave. So could you just kind of expand on that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, without reason. So that was the million dollar question, right? And let me let me back up to why the policy even exists. Remember the reason to take this the reason the government put this two week leave in place was to pay people so they stay home. Right. Remember what the events were. You you have symptoms or you are quarantined or that kind of thing. So the purpose for this leave is to get people to stay home to to slow the spread of this virus. Well, the one group of people we can't have staying home are the medical providers. So it's it's not being you know they didn't do this to pick on medical providers. It's just a it's just a recognition of the obvious situation we're in. We're trying to get people to stay home when they're for two weeks when they're having you know symptoms or when they've been told to quarantine, but we just can't apply that rule to medical providers because these are the people on the front lines of the war and they have to be at work. And so the exception is a, a, a medical organization the when the rule came out a couple of days ago it's broader than we thought does not have to grant the leave to anyone who works at the organization not just the doctors and nurses so a clinic for example does not have to grant the leave even to their administrative staff because they need their administrative staff to run the clinic okay they can it was made the, the rules made very clear a, 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 a clinic that grants sick leave to a staff member can still collect the track collect the tax credit and they're allowed to but they can also say no we need you at work because unfortunately you're the you're the people that we need most right now and so you're not eligible for the leave a, a, a medical organization has the right to to deny that Yes, and, and thank you for those first responders and providers, for sure. Um, I'm going to let you all read the, the you know, who is a provider and who's not. You can also reference the DOL fact, question 56 and 57 for more details on that. We talked about this one. What records do I need to keep when an employee takes sick leave or takes a paid sick leave or expanded family medical leave? Please refer back to slide six for that answer. Um, and it, it just note that the employer is not required to provide these leads if the material sufficient to support the tax credit has not been provided by the employee. Yeah, yeah the Department of Labor, I'm sorry, the IRS did, a I think, a nicer job than the Department of Labor did in, in defining this. So if you're really looking at what kind of documentation you should be doing, <clears throat> I'd point you to the IRS what, website first on the tax credit because they did a little more detailed description of the of the documentation and what you can ask or what you need to ask from from your employee. So that's that's a, that's a good resource. They they spell it out pretty clear there. I've I've gotten this one uh, so many times. It's not our area of expertise. This is what we would call employment law. Can an employee mm -hmm. refuse to come to work because of fear of infection? I cited my source because I do not, uh, of course, did not want to take credit for this answer. It's fisherphillips.com. I've talked about them being a great source for employment law questions. They, their website is just fantastic. And you can see the answer here. They don't say yes or no because the answer is just not that simple. Um, so I, I would say that um, this, this one, before you refuse, uh, before you um, take any action from an employee who refuses to come to work to make sure you're speaking with an expert on this topic. The first question I got m multiple times is, you know, what if someone needs more than 80 hours of the sick leave? 
Let me back up a step and again remind everyone why the two-week sick leave was passed. And I think it really will help answer a lot of the questions. The two-week sick leave was passed not specifically to give money to our employees while it does that. It was really passed as a public health initiative. In other words, if you're if you've been exposed or you're told to quarantine for some reason or you have symptoms, how long are you told to quarantine? Two weeks, right? 14 days. 15. What did we just do? We're now going to pay you for those 14 days so you stay home. Bob, are there any questions you see right now that we did not answer? That's the purpose of this law. So all these questions about can they access other things? Are they eligible for other things? This doesn't change anything else they're eligible. They may be eligible for your sick leave. They may be eligible for your PTO. They may be eligible for other things after this leave is done. You cannot force them to use any of the other paid leave you offer before giving them this two weeks. If they meet one of those criteria, then you got to give them the two weeks and you got to pay them but then they'll have other things available. But again, think of what this is for. It's for taking away, uh, for it, basically what I read in one of the regulations, I thought it was stated pretty well, is we don't want these people that should be staying home because they're quarantined or, they're, or they have symptoms. We don't want them making choices between the money they need and staying home. We want them to stay home. So that helps kind of put where this, it's a special one-time deal so that people stay home when they're in situations that's going to potentially um, uh, uh, help from spreading this this terrible disease. Um, a lot of questions about tele, telework. Um, so it the, the regulations that came out yesterday from the Department of Labor did help here. If you're able to do your job through teleworking, you're not eligible for the leave. Now, that's going to be a big debate with some people, of course. We know, I mean, the employee might say, I can't do my job because my kids are home and 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 they're crazy and I, I can't get my work done. The employer might say, well, no, but you seem to be getting your work done just fine. I know it's hard, but you know, you're, you're doing just fine. So there's going to be debates around this, but really all of this leave is available, um, especially when the debate around the, the, the 12 weeks of FMLA leave, the employee needs to be able to show that they can't do their job because they have to stay home with the kids. And they added another layer to that again yesterday in the guidance that the DOL put out. Um, if the employee has other someone else that's able to take care of the children, like a spouse or parent or daycare, existing daycare services, they can't take the leave just because the school is closed. So the employee is going to need to be able to say, I need to stay home to take care of the kids and there's nobody else to do it. Now, again, I know we're sitting in our little crystal palace, you know, making that sound really easy. There's going to be a lot of really difficult conversations around that, but that is one of the criteria for being able to apply uh, to uh, get the, <clears throat> excuse me, the FMLA portion of the leave. Um, Bob, I have, I have a couple here, if you but, don't mind. Um, yeah, please. Asked, what, what if they take the leave for themselves and they need to take another leave to care for a loved one? Uh, my understanding yeah. is you get one, you get one, one shot. Um, this is a one shot so, deal. That you're right. This one is. Um, yeah, I like you. I mean, you know, you, if there's other leave, I mean, maybe I got some vacation time, or maybe I got some PTO or something. But this particular requirement, and and be careful, folks, when we talk about. Not only is it a one shot deal, that's o the only thing you're going to get money back through the tax credit. So if you gave someone two different leaves, God bless you. 
thank you for doing that, but you're only going to be able to, to collect the tax credit for a particular employee on one of them. And then we have someone, just to clarify, they only get the 80 hours paid sick leave if they truly do have a medical reason for staying home versus not just wanting to stay home because of self-quarantine. So if they, you know, if they truly have a medical, let, let's not forget, you know, FMLA still exists. We're going to have a lot of regular good old-fashioned standard FMLA events, aren't we? I mean, if people are sick and by this disease, it's probably going to be a serious health condition that they're eligible to stay home for under FMLA, but that's unpaid, right? Um, FMLA, traditional FMLA. So I think mm -hmm. that's the question. Am I answering the question, Michelle? I mean, the, the, they might have sick leave and they I, might have paid, but I might have to let them stay home for 12 weeks if they're seriously ill, right? Right. And I, but I think this, this person said, well, what if they just said, I want, I want to self quarantine. Is that a qualifying reason for one mm. of the, one of the leads? And, and, oh, great. And, I'm sorry. It, yeah. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, no, it's not because the, the self, the self quarantine or I have symptoms and I just want to stay home. You actually have to, so there's, there's two, there's two levels here. One is if you have symptoms, you have to stay home, but that's, and you, and you want to stay home, you only qualify the leave if you're seeking medical care. So you can't just say, mm, I got a fever and runny nose, I, I want the two weeks of paid leave. You would actually have to be able to show that you um, went to a doctor or teledoc or whatever that you sought medical care to qualify, okay? Someone just self-quarantining for symptoms, you know, or they don't it just, they're, or they're nervous about, it is not in itself. Uh, qualify them for the two weeks leave. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll take one. We want to find one more, and I'll find one more. It's. Uh, okay. I do have one. I do actually. There was one I wanted to touch on. I had someone ask about. Um, um, what if someone took leave prior to, to. Uh, April 1st. So if the employee was already mm. on leave for other reasons do, prior to April 1st, does FFCRA apply if, if they're, they actually qualify under there as well? Right. And again, no, I mean, <clears throat> not only does it not apply, you can't count it against the two weeks, you know, so that's a common one, right? Well, I just gave them five days of the same leave before April 1st. Does that mean they only have, you know, less less available now. No, everything started brand new, two weeks, tax credits, leave. You don't get to count anything you've done up until yesterday. And it is not retroactive. So if someone went out on leave, no. this, this question is actually an example that I've already, that I put in the facts is if someone went out on leave for Mar on March 15th, um, right. are, they, are they eligible for this? And, and the answer is no, it's, it's not retroactive. Right. Exactly. Oops. What do you think, Michelle? Okay. I know we've got a lot to follow up to do. <laughs> we do. We do. Let's go ahead. Bob, I need to be mindful of your time as well and, and everyone else on the line. So um, thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for your questions. These are fantastic. We will, Bolton will follow up. We'll put together some facts, give us a couple of days. And so all the questions you've asked today, that, that we can answer, we have that expertise, we'll make sure that we get that in a document and we send it out to our attendees afterwards in the next few days. Thanks, Bob. Thanks really appreciate your thanks time. Thanks for today. having me. Thank stay, you, everyone. Stay healthy. Thanks. Yes, Take care. Thank you. Bye.